I was spending money I didn't have to buy things I didn't need to impress people I didn't like. Hey, everyone. I'm Morgan, co-founder of Primal Kitchen and host of the Primal Kitchen podcast. Today, I'm talking with the pioneers of the 21st century minimalism movement, Josh Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. Josh and Ryan climbed up the corporate ladder in their 20s to obtain the standard American successful life of expensive clothes, luxury cars, and big suburban houses. They thought they had everything one could want in life until life-altering events like death and divorce changed their perspective, and they've been asking themselves what they truly wanted out of life ever since. Thus began their journey into letting go of the material world. And since then, they've helped over 20 million people live meaningful lives with less material items through their website, books, podcasts, and films. Before we get started, a brief reminder that any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Whew. Hi, guys. How are you? Howdy. Doing great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're so excited. I was just saying before we started that I interview a lot of people and my husband was most excited to have you guys on the show. He was most excited to hear I was interviewing you of anyone I've ever talked to. He did, I think this might be your minimalist challenge. This is like, I'm talking 2000, maybe, I don't know, 16, 17. He did like a 30 day challenge where on the first day you get rid of one thing. And then the second day you get rid of two things. And then the third day, three things. Was this a challenge you guys started? Oh yeah, that's definitely us. So, uh, Josh and I, we understand that like, you know, getting rid of things, it can be a bit boring. You know, the the thought of decluttering doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So we thought if we could inject a little fun with cluttering, then, uh, you know, more people uh, might be apt to, to start this whole process. So what we did is we came up with something called the 30 day minimalism game. You find a friend or you find a family member, you just find someone else. Maybe it's a neighbor who wants to get rid of stuff and you agree to play this game. And the way the game works is on the first day of the month, you get rid of one things, one thing. And then on the second day of the month, two things. And then the third day of the month, three things. And then on the fourth. Okay. So you probably get the point. Mm-hmm. It starts out really, really easy. And then by like day 21, you're like, oh my goodness, I got to get rid of 21 things, 21 things today. And then 22 things tomorrow. So it gets a little more, a little bit more difficult as the, the month goes on. But here's the thing. Uh, you know, you know, the way you win is whoever lasts the longest, that's who wins. But if both people make it to the end of the month, then they they kind of both win because they would have each have gotten rid of about, you know, 500 things. Yeah, it's crazy. I remember he was down to like counting individual socks. I mean, we did it together. He lasted longer than me, but he's like, all right, day 22, like this is not a pair of socks. This is two socks. Like don't mess with me. So I I very much remember this. So, so how'd you guys get here? Like give us the lowdown. This is such an interesting story. Well, you sort of touched on it. We were living the American dream, big houses, cars. We grew up really poor and we thought we were unhappy because we didn't have a lot of money. We were on food stamps and government assistance. There was a lot of alcohol and drug abuse and physical abuse in our homes. We grew up in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, we thought, wow, we could just get out of this if we could just make enough money. And so when we turned 18, we went out and we got these entry-level corporate jobs. Ryan and I have known each other since we were fat little fifth graders. So we've known each other for over 30 years now. And um, we got we got these corporate jobs and we started climbing the corporate ladder. And as we made more money, we spent more money all in the pursuit of happiness. And it was like, oh, wait a minute. I'm making $50,000 a year and it's not making me happy. And my, you know what the problem is? 
I didn't adjust for inflation. So maybe $65,000 a year, maybe $80,000 a year, maybe a six-figure salary, maybe that will make me happy. And so we kept climbing the corporate ladder. And when the money didn't make us happy, of course, maybe it's because we're not buying the right kind of stuff. So I need the luxury car. I need the big suburban house with more toilets than people. I need all of the things to fill every corner of my consumer-driven life. And by the time we were approaching age 30, we sort of had that American dream all the stuff, all the accoutrements, all the success, the job title, etc. But we also had a lot of things that you couldn't see from the outside. We had stress, debt, a lot of debt, anxiety, discontent, overwhelm. And then two things happened. Uh, my mom died, my marriage ended both in the same month. And you alluded to that in the intro. And those two things really forced me to look around and start to question what had become my life's focus. And I realized I was focused on all the wrong stuff. I was focused on stuff and on accumulation and impressing others, spending money I didn't have to buy things I didn't need to impress people I didn't like. And that cycle continued for over a decade. And I realized that I needed to simplify my life. I stumbled across this term, minimalism. There were a lot of people like Joshua Becker and Courtney Carver and Leo Babalta, different people who were minimalists, and they were all living different lives, but they had simplified their lives. And I realized like, oh, maybe this is a tool for me to simplify my life, not to find what is important, but to uncover what is important, what's already there by letting go of the excess stuff. You know, the average American household has 300,000 items in it. And that doesn't mean we're all hoarders. We just own a lot of stuff. And that'd be wonderful if it brought us more joy more peace, more tranquility. But those things often bring the opposite. We all know that the more stuff we have, it's not the more happier we are. In fact, it often weighs us down. It gets in the way of the things that matter. Mm. I love it. Yeah. I always say all this stuff ends up owning us. We don't own this stuff. It's like, yeah. 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 So you guys grew up, so then, so yeah. then what? Okay. So you've made, you've had this like life realization, you've had all these like big major changes, but like you realize we want to minimize, but, but then what, how do you guys embark on this journey together <laughs> and how did it start? Yeah. And then what, that's sometimes <laughs> the hardest question, right? <laughs> um, but as, you know, as far as our journey into minimalism, you know, I started noticing, different things about Josh in the corporate world. Like one of the first things I noticed is he started setting boundaries with our, our boss and our boss's boss. And that was kind of sacrilege back in, back in the day. I mean, you know, you were at your boss's beck and call, beck and call. And, uh, you know, when they called you answered and Josh kind of stood up and he's like, Hey, look, um, my life's out of control. Uh, I'm going to give you the best of myself that I can, but, um, I'm going to have some hours where I, I need to not look at email or, or answer phones. And that, again, the first thing that stood out to me, like, what is going on with him? And I noticed him kind of walking around a little lighter, a little happier, a little bit more, a uh, little bit more focused. And I went to him and I asked him to lunch and uh, sat him down. And I'm like, hey, man, what's going on with you, man? Why the hell are you so happy? And he spent the next you know, 20 minutes telling me about this thing called minimalism. Um, he talked about sim simplifying and paring down. And as he's kind of having this conversation with me, you know, what I saw was a bunch of common sense stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, if you don't have a lot of stuff, then you don't have to clean as much or uh, you don't have to have as big of a house or uh, maybe you don't have to go into debt. And that's really where I was. I mean, my life was a tornado of of uh, of chaos. I had a lot of debt. Um, I was drinking a lot. I was doing a lot of drugs. I was just, you know, kind of all over the place. 
So minimalism for me was an answer to kind of settle down and to start to focus on on what had become uh, most important in my life. So I look at Josh. I excitedly announce like, all right, man, I'm in. I'll do it. I'm going to be a minimalist. Uh, <laughs> now what? You know, like I don't know what to do. So we came up with this crazy idea called a packing party where we decided to pack all my belongings as if I were moving. And then I would unpack only the items I needed over the next three weeks. So uh, Josh came over and literally helped me box up everything. My clothes, kitchenware, towels, TVs, electronics, frame photographs and paintings, toiletries. I mean, even my furniture, we like covered it up. And uh, yeah, over the next three weeks, I started unpacking things um, that were really adding value to my life. So, you know, toothbrush, uh, some bed sheets, some clothes for work, the furniture I actually used. Uh, it's, so you can imagine the first few days, a lot of stuff is coming out of those boxes. But then it just started dwindling. I started going to those boxes less and less. And really, at the end of those three weeks, I had 80% of my stuff still sitting in those boxes, just sitting there unaccessed. You know, I looked at all those things. I'm like, wow, like here are all the things I've brought into my life to make me happy, but yet they're not doing their job. So, you know, I decided to donate, sell, recycle. I I got rid of uh, all that, that 80%. And I just remember thinking like, okay, if there's someone out there, uh, just one person that could benefit from this story that I just went through, because it was a lot emotionally. um, It was a lot physically. Uh, it, it really changed my state and hate, uh, helped me really re, uh, reprioritize or at least start to get an idea on what I needed to reprioritize on. So I went to Josh. He, uh, he has always loved writing. I remember like in high school, we'd get like a really long essay assignment and I'm like, Oh man, I can't believe I got to write, you know, three pages. <laughs> and Josh is like, I love it, man. It's my favorite part of school. So anyway, he's always been a writer. And I went to him and I'm like, Hey man, we could, we could start a website just like these other folks and we could tell our story. And I bet you there's at least one, if not two, there's three people out there. So that's really where the minimalists.com started. It was with that, that entire story. I love it. And so you guys mentioned like you've learned, okay, what doesn't make you happy? Like we all think, I always say this, like, especially in LA, you like buy a car you don't need to drive to a job you hate. It's like just this rat race. And I've suffered from this as well. Like we sold the company. My life circumstances changed substantially. And how do you not, how do you have the discipline to like live like Warren Buffett in the same house you grew up in, right? And not just ratchet up the lifestyle. You're on the treadmill, the whole thing. But like, what have you learned does make you happy then once you get rid of all the like excess fat, let's call it? The the pursuit of happiness is one of the things that really makes us miserable. And it, it's so ingrained in our culture. In fact, it's even in the founding documents of America, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And I have a problem with that because it presupposes that happiness can be pursued, which is a strange way to posit it. You know, I have a daughter when she was a baby. I never said, well, she should do these three things to be happy. No, she was just happy when she was happy, right? She didn't have to do anything. She didn't have to acquire anything. A Rolex wasn't going to make her happier. A Mercedes-Benz G-Wagon was not going to make her happier. It's not to say there's anything wrong with those things. The problem is when we try to pursue those things as though they're going to make us happy. And the objects of our desire very often become the objects of our discontent. The things we think we want, we get them and it turns out that everything we ever wanted isn't actually what we 
want. There's a substantial difference between the things that are truly essential in our lives, the things that add value to our lives, and the junk. A moment ago, I talked about the average household has 300,000 items in it. And that wouldn't be a problem if those things were all essential. Fortunately, we don't need 300,000 items in order to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be at peace. In fact, those things will get in the way of our peace. In um, our most recent book, Love People Use Things, we have these 16 rules for living with less. And they're not really rules. They're just boundaries that Ryan and I have set up in our own lives. And they're adjustable for anyone. But one of those rules is what we call the no junk rule. And this is how we get unconfused by our things. And that rule states that everything you own fits in one of three piles. It's either essential, it's non-essential but value-adding, or it's junk. Now, we all have the same essentials for the most part. We all need clothing and food and shelter and education, transportation, vocation. And yes, those manifest differently for different people. You know, Ryan drives a different Toyota from what I drive, but you know, we, we both have transportation, right? For some people, that means taking the bus or an Uber. For other people, it might mean driving uh, a nice car that they can afford to pay for in cash. And so um, we all have the same essentials. Beyond that, though, the non-essentials that add value to our life, Ryan and I are not against stuff. That's a common misconception with minimalism. We're not the deprivationists. We're not monks or ascetics. We own some things. But everything we own as minimalists serves a purpose or it brings us joy and everything else is out of the way. So yes, I own a couch, right? And my family and I, we get value from the ca that couch. The problem is thinking, well, if I own a second couch, I'm going to be twice as happy. What if I put 10 couches in my living room? Am I going to be 10 times happier? No, of course not. Those other nine couches are simply going to get in the way. So one couch might be non-essential. I could get by without it. I could live without a couch. But why do that if it, if it adds value to my life? But adding more actually creates junk in our lives. So unfortunately, most of the things we own, most of the things we aspire to own fit into that third category. It's junk. We own a whole lot of junk, things that masquerade as though they're adding value, but they're actually getting in the way of living a more meaningful life. Mm. What are the most common junk things you see people owning? Oh, man. I think for me, uh, when I was going through that the boxes after the packing party, um, I came across this shoe or yeah just random drawer like random box full of cables usb cables you know the little auxiliary cables <laughs> yeah like all the little things that your electronics come with and i was going through it because i didn't want to just like throw out everything i was like oh i might need something in here and uh yeah i went through it and like half of them i didn't even know what they went to so um the other half i decided to toss out and uh actually it's funny like josh and i have a rule from the, the, the 16 rules living with less it's called the 2020 rule uh, or uh, you could call it, you know, um, the um, the just in case rule. So we we hold on to things just in case. I held on to all those cables just in case I might need them one day in some you know hypothetical future. Um, that 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 is uh, that is something that a lot of junk drawers are full, are filled with. So the twenty twenty rule says this: it says if you're holding on to something just in case, you could go ahead and let it go because you could probably replace that item for less than twenty minutes or in less than 20 minutes for less than $20. And now Josh and I, we instituted that rule back in 2011. And at first it sounds like, oh man, I don't want to have to spend $20 every day or every single time I need something. 
But the key is, is you hardly ever use it. You hardly ever use this rule. Josh and I have used it maybe five times between the two of us over the last 11 years. Hmm. And it's, it's actually really, it's a really low cost to pay to get rid of all that junk. Yeah, I love that. Um, I have a question for you guys. This is a personal one. So I'm really good at getting rid of stuff. Like my mom growing up was like, if you haven't worn it in a year, get it out of your closet. Like very, we always have like a goodwill donation pile. I like go to friends' houses and and I like, I remember my best friend, Natalia, who works for Primal Kitchen. She, I went over to her house to help her like organize some stuff because I like doing this. And she had boxes. My dad too. They're Apple product boxes. Like three-year-old iPhones, but you keep the box. And it's it was like in their bedroom. She's going to kill me. It was like in their bedroom on the nightstand. I'm like, Natalia, you have like three Apple product boxes for electronics. Like, what, are you going to resell these? And you think you're going to get $20 more if it's in the original packaging? Like, what is happening here? My dad, this thing, he had like 19, like every iPad, iPhone, whatever he's bought for the last 15 years, he still had the box for in the basement. I mean, that blows my mind. So my problem is not getting rid of the stuff, but then how do you have the discipline to not just reintroduce more junk? Like it's a never ending cycle on both sides. So what's your advice on maintaining the minimalism and not buying stuff you don't need? I think it's less about discipline because discipline is, presupposes that it's difficult, right? I have to do this. I have to avoid this. You know, the, the discipline to let go. You know, of course, letting go is not something that you do. We often think of it as something we do. Oh, I'm going to declutter. I'm going to clean out my closet. But the real letting go happens when we stop clinging to the things. And so we might be stop clinging to a material possession, but also stop clinging to a relationship that is toxic or stop clinging to a career that is toxic or corrosive, right? And so instead of doing something to let go, it's about the stopping. But then in terms of bringing things in, the easiest way to organize your house is to avoid purchasing the things in the first place, right? Now, it's not to say we're against bringing new things in, I'll ask a few questions before I buy something. On our website, we've got this free wallpaper you can download. It's at theminimalists.com. And you just click on the resources page. There's five questions to ask before buying. And I'll give you a couple of those questions. One of them is, can I afford this item? Now, of course, is can I afford it? Like the price tag, if it's a a new phone and it costs $100 or $1,000, I might be able to afford the price. But can I afford the second price, the additional costs, You know, the worrying about the thing, the charging the thing, the putting batteries in the thing, the replacing the thing, the repainting the thing, the whatever it is, upgrading the thing, all these additional costs. And so that's one question. But the other question I ask myself is, will this add value to my life? Every time I make a purchase, I'm asking myself, will this add value to my life? And if the answer is yes, Okay, let's not deprive ourselves. Now, I have another rule called the 30-30 rule that helps me out. If something costs more than 30 bucks, I wait at least 30 hours to buy it. Now, why is that? Is it because I can't afford the $30? No, I can afford I can pull $30 out of my pocket right now and afford it, right? That's not the problem. The problem is if I keep saying yes, 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 habitually, I end up with 300,000 items in my home because of these tiny indiscretions over and over. But Giving myself that waiting period, that day or so of waiting, quite often, 
I end up not buying the thing, realizing that my life is just fine without it. Mm. So to answer your question directly, how do we have that discipline to not bring in the new things? It's about understanding when we have enough. And the only way to do that is to know what enough is. In our culture, we're always looking for more, more, more. We never stop to consider that less might actually get us to enough. Mm. Yeah. Something you keep kind of touching on, but like, it seems like this movement and, you know, you've got like a lot of like Marie Kondo stuff going on and people are like really like grasping onto this concept of like organization and minimalization in their home and just feeling like decluttered and whatnot. But you keep hinting at like minimalism as it extends to other areas of life, like boundaries with work, relationships. Like talk to me a little bit about how your work has like maybe blurred outside the lines of just 300,000 items in your home and is extending to just like a well-lived life. And maybe it's not, but it's sure. Like yeah. 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 There are probably like nine or 10 different types of clutter in our lives. And it starts with the material stuff. Our material possessions are a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So if I have a lot of external clutter, it's probably because I have a lot of mental clutter, emotional clutter, spiritual clutter, relationship clutter, calendar clutter, right? There's all this other clutter in our lives, technological clutter, all the digital screens, advertisement clutter. You know, we see somewhere between four to 10,000 advertisements a day, according to Forbes. That's a, a lot of clutter in our lives, right? And so we have a bunch of different types of clutter. And so I think with minimalism, it starts with the stuff, but Ryan and I aren't really into organizing. I think organizing is often the problem. We go to the container store and we buy all these clutter coffins to hide our clutter in these sort of basement mausoleums of stuff. The easiest way to declutter is to get rid of the things, not to simply organize them in our basements, attics, garages, spare closets. Because yes, I can have an ordinal system, a very tidy, neat <coughs> system of junk, but a bunch of junk that is stored there on shelves, even if it's alphabetized, it's still junk. It's still getting in the way. And yes, it's also getting in the way internal and internal clutter. It's always going to be taking up space in the back of my mind. So by letting go of that external physical clutter, I'm finally able to start looking inside and dealing with that relationship clutter, that mental clutter, that career clutter that has really been plaguing me, the real sources of all this discontent. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The organizing, this is, that is an interesting thing. Yeah. Then it's just also your time and energy, right? Then you're like owning all this junk. You have to pay a professional organizer to come in and organize your junk so it can sit like in a prettier container in your basement. Yeah. And I can see how that presents a little bit of a problem. So what has changed for you guys? You come into this, you're like, our lives were a mess. Like, you know, we're, there's drugs, there's alcohol, there's like all this relationship turmoil. Like where are you guys at now? Like you've built this thriving brand business. Like how has the, how has all of this transformed in your personal lives? Yeah. You know, it's crazy. If you were to tell me, you know, 11 years ago, like at the end of that packing party and be like, you're still going to be talking about minimalism 11 years from now. Like I would have been like, really? Like how many times can I tell this packing party? But as Josh mentioned, like it's just gone into so many other aspects of life. I mean, it could be, uh, you know, the things that Josh listed, it could be ingredients and in food. I mean, that's one of the things I like about Primal Kitchen is like very few ingredients in the food. So what we have uncovered is, uh, 
just something that we can really all aspects of life. My life, it started, like I said, with, with debt. It started with chaos. It started with a bunch of wrong decisions. Um, I remember looking at that 80% of my stuff in boxes and I thought, here are like tens of thousands of dollars of, of things just sitting there. And as I was thinking about what I, what, uh, I really prioritized in my life, it's funny because if you would have asked me at that time, Hey, Ryan, what are your priorities? I would have said, it's got to be my health. If you're not healthy, then, you know, are you really living? And it's got to be relationships. You got to have good relationships in your life and you got to be cultivating that passion that, that, uh, you know, that deep desire to do something. You got to grow. You got to contribute. And I probably could have rattled those off really easily. But when I looked at what I was actually doing with my time, I wasn't doing any of those things. Mm. I was just giving those priorities lip service. And uh, that was one of the first revelations I had was like, hey, our priorities are not what, what we say they are. It's what we actually do. And when I was able to kind of clear all that clutter, get that 80% of stuff, 80% of stuff out of my life, uh, I downsized my house. I got rid of my car payment and I got to something that was much more appropriate for myself. Um, I, I really had the time to, well, I had time to focus on what really mattered. So yeah, we're not offering or promising anything with minimalism, you get rid of all your stuff and still be completely miserable. Like that's, that's totally possible. Um, if you don't know why you're doing it, uh, then it could be problematic. But for me, I knew why I was doing it. I was doing it to get out of debt, to get more time to think, to get more time to decide on what to do with my life, to, to get time to, uh, you know, get the help I needed to, to, to get off of all those, you know, crazy substances I was on. And, you know, once, once I uh, was able to refocus, you know, that's kind of where you see us now. I mean, it, it has, we've been able to refocus this into so many different things. And um, I don't take it lightly. You called us, I, I was laughing at the beginning because you called us the pioneers of minimalism. And it's funny because like Buddha was a minimalist. Yeah, I need the Stoics were minimalist. But the fact that you called us the pioneers, I mean, that's, that's, a, it's a compliment. Um, but to say that, you know, we have any type of say or influence at all when it comes to this thing called minimalism, um, I'm very happy that we're able to, um, to, to, to have that responsibility. And like I said, I don't, I don't take it lightly or for granted at all. Yeah, no, that's reminds me of Mark, right? Like people call him like the OG paleo guy. And I'm like, no, really, actually, the people who were, eating real food before we invented this mass manufactured food industry where the people who were pioneering, you know, this real food movement that we've kind of just, you know, tapped into and been like, Hey, funny, that kind of worked. Maybe we don't need more technology and more chemicals. Maybe we actually need less, like let's approach it that way. How do you think we got here? Like, how did we get here? You guys have done two amazing documentaries on just like consumerism in the U S like, yeah. How did we get here and how are we getting out of this? Yeah. I mean, I think it's an individual. It's so highly individual, in fact, right? Because yes, would most people benefit from living a more intentional life, being more intentional with their resources, being more intentional with their diet, being more intentional with their money? Certainly. And some people will benefit way more than others. You've seen this in the work that you do. You know, some people have serious chronic illness and a few subtle changes, removing the, the toxic chemicals they're putting in their bodies from processed foods and tap water and soda and all these other things that are making us ill. By making a few subtle changes, it makes a dramatic shift in their well-being. Well, I think the same thing can be true with respect to our consumerism, right? Consumerism is merely the ideology that buying things is going to make us happier, more complete. And 
you know, of course, you're already complete. You're complete in an empty room. And the things that I bring into my life, then I want them to augment or enhance my experience of life, amplify my life. But I never anticipate that they're going to complete me. They're not even necessarily going to make my life, quote unquote, better. Right. And I think that's unfortunate. That's how we got here is we're constantly striving to make things better, which means what we're discontented with the way things are. We think we're not enough. We think we need to constantly improve, but recognizing that sometimes now improving means removing, removing those toxic chemicals, removing the toxic stuff, removing the toxic relationships, that corrosive career that we have, removing those things often makes us better as opposed to adding more and more and more, which yeah, it really stresses us out, right? Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of compassion for people. People call, people call into our podcast all the time, the Minimalist Podcast, and when they call in, you can you can hear the despair, the anxiety, the stress. I've gotten myself into the situation, and I have empathy for that because I've been there. I had almost half a million dollars worth of debt. I had, you know, I made really good money in the corporate world, really good money. But I spent even better money. And so I was broke. And that equation just doesn't work out. I had an oversized house that not only it's not that I couldn't afford it, it's that I didn't need it. Right. So I couldn't afford it and I didn't need it. Why was I buying this? I didn't need two living rooms. I didn't need three bedrooms, a two and a half car garage. I don't even know what that means. A two and a half car garage. What the hell is half a car? Right. And so we have all of these things. Why? Was this term? Uh, it's called mimetic desires, and so quite often the things we want or the things we think we want, they're mimetic, meaning that it's just a fancy way of saying that the people around us actually want them. We want them because society wants them, and so we see it on our Instagram feed, whether it's in an ad or an influencer is showing off some new consumer purchase. And there's nothing wrong with the things, but thinking acquiring those things is going to make me a better me is a recipe for misery. Mm. Have you found it hard? Having you mentioned you have a daughter. I don't know if you both have kids, but have you found it hard or just like, what's been your take on the like parenting and baby industry? Because to me, like nothing is more aggressive than the amount of like tools and contraptions and things that people are trying to sell new parents to ease their fear of becoming a new parent. Like how have you, what's been your take on that whole experience? I'm so curious. I think it's hideous. You know, um, yeah, I have a daughter. She's, she'll be nine in a few weeks. And I think it's dangerous because when we first start parenting, we don't know. We, we have a desire to be a quote unquote good parent. And so we think the way that we can do that is through acquisition. It's a, just a d- different type of consumerism. If I acquire all the correct, the proper accoutrements, then I will be a better version of, of a parent, right? But, and there's nothing wrong with many of those things. Quite often they just get in the way or they don't really serve the intended purpose. And so they drain our bank accounts without doing much for our 
so-called parenting. But sometimes some of those things actually really do get in the way and harm our children. One of the worst things I've ever done for my daughter is give her access to a glowing screen. And it's, uh, it's addictive. We know it as adults. It can be so addictive. Imagine how addictive it is to you know, a prepubescent child whose prefrontal cortex is not fully developed. And so I think quite often we look for shortcuts, but there are no shortcuts. There are only direct routes. And with respect to parenting, well, what what is the main function of a parent? It's to allow a kid to develop, to provide safety and security for the child, but also recognizing that safety doesn't mean bubble wrapping their world. It doesn't mean they're going to be free of harm or danger. No, in fact, that makes them less safe in the long run. So yes, it is setting up some boundaries so we don't ruin our children's lives. But beyond that, we've been prescribed a bunch of things by society that is causing a lot of, well, uh, a lot of discontent among our children, right? You, we see the anxiety and depression levels of teens, especially teen girls. They're through the roof. It's, it's a true epidemic among high schools and middle schools all throughout the United States and the Western world in general, the, the levels of depression. Now, where does that come from? It comes from, a lot of it stems from at least, comparison. Comparison is a, is a mental illness of sorts. And it's only, it's only amplified by our technology. And it's not to say I'm a Luddite. We should never use technology. Obviously, I'm talking to you through a microphone. We're using a camera here to do this. These are tools, right? But sometimes if we're not careful with these tools, we can accidentally use them to bludgeon the people we love, mm -hmm. including our children. How do you handle that? Like, how do you handle the screen time with a nine-year-old? Yeah. yeah. Getting some feedback. Yeah. Boundaries, right? Yeah. Boundaries. I don't I don't have kids. I don't have kids, so it's really easy for me to give advice on kids. <laughs> but you know, one thing I do know is that kids don't do what we tell them to, they do what we do. So, you know, I think that that's probably the first thing to consider when uh, you know, when you're trying to set some boundaries with a child with a screen, they're they're gonna mimic what you're doing. That's for that's probably the number one thing to look at. What else do you think, Josh? Yeah, I, I completely agree with that because it, you'll see it as something as simple as if I tell Ella, you know, to uh, eat with a fork, but then she sees me, you know, grab an orange off of her mom's plate with my hand or something. You know, I grab something uh, with my hand. And of course, it's I'm saying one thing, but doing another. Right. And so there's consistency. And you know, our friend Rob Bell says that uh, you're always teaching your kids and sometimes it's with words. <laughs> And so recognize that, yeah, you're constantly teaching your kids and it rarely requires words. It requires a demonstration of the behaviors that you want to exhibit, right? And so the, the best way that I can parent my kid is to not screw her up by doing the things that I don't want her to do as well. Yeah, no, I love that. Okay, so transitioning a little bit here, but who's inspiring you guys these days? Like, who are you following? What are you seeing? in the world that is good. Hmm. You know, I look at, uh, I look at a lot of, a, a lot of the old role models, you know, whether it's like uh, the Stoics or whether it's, um, you know, any religious figure, I think there's value in all of that. So, you know, for me, I, I look up to these folks because they were, 
living simple lives and they were living meaningful lives. Um, you can look at Henry David Thoreau. Um, he's a, he's a great example. Um, you know, I really like Jim Carrey. Like he's, 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 he's really, um, turned into quite the philosopher these days. And yeah. I really respect that. Um, I think that his story is, it's incredible. Like, I mean, he's, he seems very enlightened and it's, you know, it would be difficult to do that with as much fame and fortune as he has, uh, have as him. So, you know, really anyone who's living a good life, you know, and that, and that could be Leo Babauta, that could be, and when I say a good life, I, I mean, they're, they're, they're at peace and they are doing with their time what they see fit to do with their time. And uh, they're also using that time as a gift to kind of project and tell their story or maybe help others in, in some way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's so many people I look up to uh, from the past and, and from today. Yeah, there are a lot of thinkers that are inspiring to me because they live the life. It has very little to do with their words or their writings, but you see it in the life that they lead and the truth that they have located. So whether that, that's anyone from like uh, Kapil Gupta to Jesus to Anthony DeMello, th these are thinkers, but we also have to be careful not to turn certain people into gurus, right? And then turn them into prescriptions, basically. Oh, yeah. It's like if you look at Buddha and you look at the you know, Four Noble Truths or whatever, like, no, it's really about how he lived his life, right? And you can't prescribe truth. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's the reason I have a problem with a lot of sort of how-to stuff, because, yes, I can show you the 67 ways how to declutter your kitchen, but if you don't know why you're doing that, then a month from now, the kitchen will just be recluttered. But if you have a deep, thorough understanding of how that excess is actually, why that excess is getting in the way, then once you let go of it, you're not going to bring it back in because you understand the suffering that that excess causes. Hmm. You guys think minimalism has a place in like fitness, diet, like how does it come into play in our own like health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's funny. We, you know, we pay uh, in LA, it's, you know, hundreds of dollars a month to go to a gym and you got all these crazy diets and you got um, all this crazy exercise equipment. Have you seen the new version of the boat? You know, it's like, there's so many different things, but uh, we lie to ourselves and say that we need that in order to be healthy. And, you know, really what we need is some movement and we need uh, some good food. And, and that's, that's a great start to uh, being healthy. So I'm not saying that those things don't have their place. Um, I, I go to a gym, you know, I, I, uh, I, but I keep it simple. My gym actually is probably one of the smallest gyms I've ever been to in LA. They don't have a whole lot there, um, but I can really maximize that equipment to get, you know, a complete workout each time I go. Um, and then with diet, of course, yes. I mean, you know, the first thing my wife does uh, when she gets something off the shelf, if it's in a package, which we try not to get too many things in packages, but sometimes you're on the road and you got to grab a little something. She looks at the ingredients and she's just like counting ingredients and like the things with the least amount of ingredients is usually what she's going to pick up because yes, these things certainly uh, have a place. And as you know, with the paleo stuff, I mean, how simple did they eat? It was pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the Hadza, they were certainly eating and still do eat paleo today. Right. And so, um, I find that minimalism or simplicity, simple living, whatever you want to call it, intentional living, often has much more to do with what we don't do as opposed to what we do do. And let me expand on that real quick. So 
we often think about minimalism and what should I do to be a minimalist or what should I do to eat more simply? Well, no, it's not about doing anything. It's about excluding, right? I don't want to bring those toxic things from the middle of the supermarket into my body because it's going to cause inflammation, which long-term can cause all kinds of other issues up to and including cancer, right? And so I want to avoid the inflammatory foods, just like I want to avoid the inflammatory material possessions or the inflammatory and stressing relationships, the inflammatory career. I want to avoid the things that are going to create dis-ease in my life. And yes, that certainly is true with respect to diet. Now, you can achieve that through different means. On our podcast, we did an episode of the podcast with two of our favorite people in the world. Um, Rich Roll, you know, he's a vegan athlete. I'm sure you know who yeah, Rich Roll is. And mm-hmm. He's a good friend, great, good friend of ours. He's been on the podcast maybe four or five times at this point. And, um, and then we did, we brought Dr. Paul Saladino in as well. So we had two of them. Paul Saladino is uh, known as the carnivore MD. So we have a vegan and a carnivore. And so you would think, wait a minute. These guys, they must have nothing in common because the Venn diagram of what they eat is literally exact opposite with virtually no overlap, especially at the time. I think Paul eats some fruit and, and stuff now. So there might be a little bit of overlap between them now. But even then, they eat appreciably different diets. But what we learned is they shared a whole lot in common. We didn't want to host it as a debate. We wanted to find the common ground. And the common ground was pretty simple. What is a minimalist diet? A minimalist diet is a diet that doesn't that excludes processed foods and refined seed oils. And a minimalist diet excludes you know food from somewhere across the world. Instead, we're eating locally, right? And so we have all of these different ways that we can look at a minimalist diet, but it usually has to do with what we're avoiding rather than simply what we're putting into our bodies. Yeah, I love that. I love that you had those guys on. It's been fun to see. Rich Roll's been really good about like entertaining those kind of conversations with a lot of uh, folks. So it's cool to see. Yeah, I totally agree. It's funny you mentioned just like what I've been observing from afar. There's like this big plant-based movement going on, right? That's getting a lot of like investment. We've got like Beyond Meat and all these Mm. products and they've replaced animal products that have one ingredient with these like super processed soy protein isolate combinations with 80 other ingredients to try to emulate meat. And I'm just left wondering, like, really, like, how could this be better for us than just eating a single ingredient? But I digress. Um, I would love to, I would love to the two of them chat on that. Um, okay. Tell me you guys what your, biggest failure in life has been and biggest success. You guys can each take one or you can take both. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about both. I'm trying to think we actually did this whole series on our uh, podcast called biggest failure. And I know I did one. And I'm trying to f- f- remember what I talked about. Do you remember what I talked about? I have a lot of failures. So how much time <laughs> right. do have? Like I'll just choose one, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Go for it. I- I'll tell you one. So when I first, I got a phone call December 23rd of 2008, and my mom found out she had stage four lung cancer. And I think my biggest failure was not spending more time with her before then. We had a pretty strained relationship because when growing up, 
she was um, an alcoholic when I was growing up. She was an alcoholic. And um, I think that strained our relationship quite a bit. And unfortunately, I didn't spend as much time that last year of her life. I really wish I really wish I would have. I was a giant failure of mine. Um, I don't really look at things. I tend not to look at things in terms of success and failure. I don't think success exists. I think it's a misnomer. I think it's nonsense. I, I think all the things, because I was really successful in my 20s. I had the six-figure salary, the corporate job, the big house, the cars, luxury cars, plural. I had two Lexuses. I think Lexi might be the plural for Lexus. I, I had all the success, right? I had all the the right friends and the proper connections and the networking events. And I was successful, but I was miserable. And so success is a bit of a farce. If if the price of success is misery, I'm going to opt out every time. So, of course, we can redefine success. But sometimes we do uh, tours. We're in the middle of our, our 10th tour in 12 years right now. We're on a book tour. And I often ask people in the crowd, like, hey, paint a picture of a successful person to me. If I were to show you a picture of a successful person, what do they look like? And it's almost always the same. It's a guy with an expensive suit and an expensive watch, an expensive car, a big house, a trophy wife. Uh, and all of, And so even treating your spouse as almost a commodification of sorts, right? Commodifying people. And what I've realized is that, and sometimes I even have boats when I, I ask you, a yacht or whatever. And you, every time we've painted this picture of success. And so we can redefine success. That's fine. If you want to say, well, success is spending more time with my kid. Okay, that's great. But our society doesn't define success that way. It's unfortunate they don't. And so we can choose to redefine on our own or we can just opt out altogether. The need to be successful is what is driving us crazy. It's what's stressing us out. It's what's put us, putting us into debt. It's making us take on jobs or careers or obligations that we would never otherwise take on, but we want that veneer of success. And so Ryan and I have opted out of, of that whole system. And so we're not successful anymore. We've chosen not to be. <laughs> you guys are like, you're smart entrepreneurs here. So like, you know, how do you wrestle? Do you ever feel like imposters, like guilty for the success of your movement and your brand and all of this? Like, how do you wrestle with that? Because like that, I I feel like that would be like challenge, right? Like, oh, are we getting too big? Are we, yeah. you know, I don't know. Is there any like internal dilemma that goes on or not really? Well, I mean, for me, like, yeah, imposter syndrome is something I certainly deal with. Um you know, I wish I could sit here and be like, well, but at about year seven, I felt like I wasn't an imposter. Anymore. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I heard I heard this gentleman give a talk way back in like 2012. Chris Brogan, mm-hmm. he uh, gave this talk about and he, he kind of opened up his talk with like, you know, I have this feeling that one day there's going to be a knock at the door. I'm going to open the door and it's going to be like the fraud police. And they're going to be like, we found you. We finally found you. You, you can't run anymore. And uh, the more he looked at that, he kind of realized that, you know, that this is a very common feeling. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, anytime I get that feeling, which, you know, cause I certainly don't feel like the pioneer of minimalism. I don't feel like the voice of minimalism. And we, you know, sometimes people will call us those things. So it's really about my self-perception. If someone else wants to, you know, throw something on me. That's okay. Like I can't help what they, you know, whatever they uh, assign to me. But what I what I can help is 
um, what I put out into the world. So for me, anytime I start to feel like an imposter, just ask myself, like, well, are, are you being the most genuine version of yourself that you possibly can? Because that's what imposters do. They act like someone they're not. And as long as I can answer yes to that question and really like look in the mirror and like ask myself, hey, are you, are you being the best, best, best version of yourself? Certainly I'm not perfect. There's always, you know, I could probably eat better, probably go to the gym more, you know, like there's always something that's going to be out there. Um, but by and large, uh, I really, I really think answering yes to that question kind of helps me get past the whole, that whole imposter syndrome. Another, like I'll talk about my biggest failure, which is probably, um, just any relationship I've had up until my wife right now. Like I have had horrible relationships. I have, um, there's been drugs involved. There's been cheating involved, um, lying, there's stealing. I mean, there's just been so much involved, um, that, you know, really has taken me a long time to kind of learn from those lessons. Um, but I'm not embarrassed about those things. Like those are things that make me, me. In fact, we wrote about those things and love people use things. We wrote about all those mistakes because we want to show people like, Hey, we're not perfect and you don't have to be perfect either. And even though we have screwed up so much, we really have been able to kind of refocus and start to live a life that is peaceful, that is meaningful. And here's how we did it. And maybe there's an ingredient here that you can kind of tweeze out and use for yourself. Um, as far as like the biggest success, I'll say the most important decision I ever made in my life was like really going and getting help and getting off of all those narcotics. Like that was a big deal because um, I just wouldn't w- wish that whole withdrawal that that those symptoms. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Like they're it's a, it's a really difficult thing to get through, but um, yeah, I moved past it and uh, I'm you know I feel really really good today. But I, I do remember there was a point in my life where I just had these one of two choices. I was either going to like go left and continue down this road of ephemeral pleasure, or I was going to like go the other way and really start to do the work that I needed to do to live the life that I wanted to live. And I, I, I remember the day I made that decision to, to start um, getting help. So was it a success? I mean, it depends on how you define success. I mean, I don't, I don't have a problem with the word success. If you want to call me successful, thanks. Do I look at myself as successful? No, I look at myself as just uh, someone who's living a genuine life. And I am so happy that I can do that, uh, you know, unimpeded. Yeah. And where, what are you guys working on? Like, so you said you're on your book tour right now. What else is going on for you guys entrepreneurial, entrepreneurially? That's, that's it. We, yeah. we just work on one thing at a time. I cool. mean, we, we have our podcast comes out every week. Um, and then, you know, we have, we have 10 plus years. Oh man, longer than that now. Over 10 years <laughs> of, of archives, you know, whether it's the podcast, we have two f- films on Netflix. Uh, we tend to work on one major project at a time. We're, we're finishing up this, uh, this tour here in North America, the Love People Use Things tour. We just had a book come out last year uh, of that same name. And, and so that's the thing we're working on right now. After this, we'll, uh, we'll figure out what the next project is and we'll, we'll slowly work on that. And once we feel outstanding about it, then we'll put it out in the world. Yeah. I just want to give some advice to someone out there who's like, gets, get asks that, gets asked for that question. Hey, what's your next thing? Cause I got yeah, ask that. I know it's so unminimalist of me to ask um, that question, isn't it? No, it's fine. It's fine. But I just want to give, I want to give people out there stressing over this. I want to give them permission and, and tell them it's okay to not have a next thing right now. It's okay to just focus on the thing you're on and kind of let the next thing, next thing happen. But because I, I found myself having to start answering that question in a very intelligent way. Well, we've done documentaries and books, so maybe we'll do this. And it's like, 
you know what? There isn't a next thing right now, and that that's all right. Yeah. But it will come. Yeah, and yeah. and I think the problem with that that constant you know glancing toward the really staring at the horizon, which is endemic in our culture, we sort of live in the rear view or we live on the horizon, and we forsake what's going on right in front of us because we need to have some sort of five year plan or ten year plan or whatever. It's it's all sort of corporate vapid nonsense, really. Uh, and so how do we how do we get around it by simply by not trying to constantly have the the next thing or the 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 full plan? And I'll tell you that it's worked out fairly well for us sort of accidentally. It's been a b- giant, beautiful accident the last 12 years of this minimalism thing. But if Ryan would have sat me down back in 2009 and said, all right, Josh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, go on 10 book tours. I'd say, well, for what book? Oh, well, actually, we're going to write four books together. And uh, But in between that, we're going to make two documentaries and uh, we're going to put them on Netflix. I would have said, what is Netflix? <laughs> and and so like, yeah. I think it's a bit overwhelming. And so instead, yeah. finding the thing that really <laughs> compels me, that's always the next thing. And so my my short answer for you is that what is next is whatever is most compelling. And when we say yes to that, it means we have to say no to other things that may be somewhat compelling, but not as compelling as the most compelling thing. And whatever that is, we'll, we'll put our all into it. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. It may, it may turn out great. It may not turn out at all. Yeah. And sometimes I always say you need to like make space for those things to come like in the universe. Like if you are running around with like a crazy life and you don't have any like breathing room. Like I think opportunities don't come. I think sometimes when you just step back, relax, trust, like I quit before I met Mark and started working on Primal Kitchen, I quit my job. We were on like a juicy van trip, living surf trip from San Francisco to San Diego with my now husband and Mark called out of nowhere. And I just like happened to be available because I had to quit a job and I didn't have anything going on. And he brought me on as a marketing consultant. And, you know, here we are, whatever, eight years later, but I think even in relationships, like you're in a bad relationship and people don't, they don't end it. So they have no space to get into a good relationship. You're just stuck without the space. So I think that's a good insight. Okay. This is my last question. I ask everyone, but I'm very curious for you guys, because you both seem to be such open books. What is something most people don't know about you? I was paid to be an extra on the movie Milk Money. No way. Melanie Griffith, I don't forget her (laughs) co-star. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was in. I, li- I lived in Lebanon, Ohio, and uh, what grade was I in? I was probably fifth grade, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember. Grade. I remember you being there at the um, at the Village Ice Cream Parlor. Yeah, we were a Barry Middle School. He's <laughs> now a shoe store. Um, yeah, I got off the bus and the- they were filming this movie, and this guy was like, "Hey, do you want to be an extra?" I've like looked for myself in the movie. I. I haven't really been able to find myself, but I was paid to be an extra in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm much taller in person than people think. I'm only a few inches tall on your screen. He uses surprisingly few hair products. <laughs> you would think now he uses hair believe. products? No. I don't believe it. He keeps I, exactly. He keeps his <laughs> hair almost looks real, doesn't it? By the way, I just want to tell you to be a minimalist, you have to have great hair, you have to wear black, and uh, you you would make a perfect minimalist. Yeah, I never brush my welcome. hair. I don't even wash it, so I think that like already puts me in the in the minimalist bucket. Like I wash it maybe once a week, and I, I literally didn't have a brush for two years when I was living in South America. So I'm I'm there. How tall are you? You <laughs> say this, you're taller than people think. How tall are you? I'm just like six two. Okay, it's just not six. like uh, I'm not yeah. a giant. 
Yeah, well, I'm only five feet tall. Like the first thing they say. Oh, really? They're like, I wasn't expecting. Oh, wow. oh, wow. Yeah, I'm like, I'm very tiny. So I think, yeah. That look at those eyes were like so big when I said that. Did you were you thinking that was of average height then? <laughs> yeah, five. But I wouldn't guess you five foot. Yeah, I know. I would guess you like five five, five six maybe. I, I don't like know why. I'll take it. <laughs> Yeah, it's the it's the I've always been the little one. So I think you have to develop like a louder voice and a thicker Chicago accent and uh, more. That's what it is. You carry yourself like a tall person. You have to. You have to to stand out in this world. And what else are you going to do? I love it. Well, thank you guys so much. This is like a life goal. We've been following your work, my husband and I, for a really long time. You've inspired us and thus a lot of our friends and family. So it was wonderful to meet you and we'll have to meet up in LA. Do you guys want to leave? Just like a- Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And real quick before you go, can you just tell everyone where they can find you if they want to learn more? Theminimalists.com. You can find our social media, you can find our podcast, books, documentaries and Joshua's hair product list. I love it. All right. Thanks, guys.